Welcome, guys. Go and have a seat when you get a chance. How's everybody doing? Man, it's hot, and it's only going to get hotter. <laughs> um, good luck, everyone. No, uh, welcome. My name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. Uh, welcome to Summer at Resonate. And today is really exciting. We are starting a brand new series uh, called Nothing is Off the Table. Uh, and basically, last week, you can listen back to the podcast, I gave a huge rant about what the table actually means. Not just the communion table, but historically what a table was. And just a real quick recap, because it kind of sets up everything that we're going to be talking about in this series, is that basically the, the premise of the table and the reason that Jesus picked that spot to experience communion, to experience what we do when we remember him and what reminds us of him, is because at the table was a place of safety, unity, and family. As soon as you would sit down at someone's table, you became family with them to the point that if an intruder came into the home and tried to harm your guests, you were honor-bound to protect them with your life. So essentially, when we come to the table, every single time we're doing that, and we, we lose that expectation, but every time we do that, we should come with the expectation of safety, of life, of community, and this idea that when we come here together, we are literally sitting at God's table. And it's a huge, humongous thing. And then the other thing uh, that I began to notice, especially in the last series, um, was I kept talking, and every time it would come up that, like, Jesus was eating a meal. Uh, and the more you explore the Gospels, the more you realize most of what Jesus said wasn't spoken from a pulpit, but it was done reclining at a table. This is the way a table would work in the ancient Near East. You would go into a home, and homes didn't have rooms. It was just one room, right? One big open room. And then uh, you would not have a four-legged table like we have. That was only in palaces. So that whole uh, like Last Supper Da Vinci thing is a farce. Anyway, uh, you would come in, and there would just be this space, and they would put down cushions, and you would recline. So when it says Jesus is reclining, he's not just taking a load off. That's the only mode that you could, that's the only posture you could have when you were at a table, and you would gather around, and the whole room would become a table. And in that sense, what I want to do with us over the next couple weeks is I would like this whole room to become that table, where nothing is off the table. We're going to talk about stuff uh, that you might find inappropriate in church, and I'm going to really, this is a caveat for the entire series here, we need to be mature about this, <laughs> all right? We have to be adults. These are, these are questions. So what we did last week is I asked you to literally submit your questions, because it seems like whenever Jesus was at one of these tables, he was having conversations with people, and they would be conversations that were honestly like to the point that if you were the other person sitting across from Jesus, you might want to kick him out, or you might want to leave, and the funny thing is neither of those ever happened. There seemed to be a mutual respect between Jesus and even the Pharisees, or Jesus and the tax collectors, the sinners that he was sitting with. Each of them had a mutual respect with each other. They would hear him out, and he would hear them out. And it's very, very, very important. So what I asked you all to do is to write questions uh, that you believe were not appropriate uh, for the church table, right? Like, we don't say that at the table. We don't talk about that, right? What are the three things you don't talk about when you go home for Thanksgiving, right? Sex, politics, religion. Those three things, right? But what are the things that we're most obsessed with? Sex, politics, religion, right? Those, it's the things we can't talk about that we're often thinking of and driving us the most. And so this is more than just an airing of grief. What I want to do is cover things that we're honestly very curious about in our faith because I think all too often we come in here and we play the hits, which are like, you know, cross, resurrection. Those are all amazing things. But there's more to what's going on in our daily life. If we're really going to be a church that's focused on arrows out, 
We have to be able to take stuff in here and bring it out into the world. And the questions we got were doozies. You people did not hold back. <laughs> We've got some crazy stuff. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about um, disability and salvation, which is going to be awesome. Um, we're reading about, like, basically about uh, if you have Alzheimer's, right? And you say that you're a Christian one minute. You fall down the stairs, and you can't remember anything. Are you still a Christian? Like, these huge questions that you would want to ask, and that maybe would be asked in, like, the middle of the night over a few beers or something, right? But don't get asked in church. These are the questions we honestly need to wrestle with and, and, and pull apart because too often when we don't talk about this stuff, that's the stuff that's going to cause us to walk away from this thing completely. It's what we really don't talk about that causes people to walk away from Jesus, walk away from this whole faith thing because it seems like we're scared. And here's the thing. Our God is too big for us to be scared about this stuff. He's too big. There's too much too much love, too much power, all that good stuff. We can't be scared to talk about the things that actually matter the most. Um, so when Jesus was at the table, they would have discussions. And whenever, you're at a, whenever he's at a table with a Pharisee, there are two things that the Pharisees had to learn. And there's a huge rabbi named Rabbi Hillel, uh, and he was a teacher for almost all of one sect of Judaism. So there are two sects, and Hillel was the, kind of the more like, progressive one. Uh, but it was all legal stuff, right? Like you were studying Deuteronomy, you were studying Leviticus, which are two books in the Bible that I dare you to read this week. Come back and you can like slap me in the face for that one because they are just, it's rule, law, rule, law, rule, law. And there's some gorgeous stuff in there, but it is dense. It's hugely dense. It's so dense that one line of it, it causes you to just sit there and think for minutes, hours, days. And so what these rabbis would do is they would just take these one things and they would come to the table and they would have discussions about what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And what that came to be known is called a halakha. And a halakha is basically a legal discussion or a legal debate. And so these rabbis would have a halakha, but they would also learn this other tradition, which was a haggadah. And a haggadah were stories that they told to describe the legal text. So if you couldn't understand fully like, why like, this rule about stealing your neighbor's goat was in there, you could tell a story about how my neighbor stole my goat. It really hurt my feelings. Here's how we rectify that. Right? That's the Haggadah compared to the Halakha. And whenever Jesus is at the table and he gets asked a Halakha question, which is a legal question, he usually responds in one of two ways. He either asks them another question right back, which is a very infuriating way of conversation. right? Like Another question is fired back. Or he uses Haggadah for their halakha. <laughs> Rhymes, it's going to be fun. I'm going to say that all today. Halakha, Haggadah. He uses Haggadah, story about the text, about real people. And I don't mean real people. I mean real people. People and examples of people and characters that these people would be dealing with in everyday life. Like the story of the Good Samaritan that's told. You're dealing with these people that are called Samaritans that look exactly like you and are actually from your same bloodline, but those people over there, we hate them, right? And he uses people that you would actually experience, stories of real people in real situations. So all of a sudden, it isn't this lofty theological discussion. It's a discussion about your relationships. It's a discussion about how you interact with people in the here and the now. And this is something that brilliant communicators understand really, really well. In the movie Lincoln, has anyone seen that movie, Lincoln? Um, so in the very beginning of the movie, Lincoln just starts telling stories. It opens him with him up, and he's telling a story to a soldier, and then he's telling another story to another person. And you begin to realize, like, he's telling a lot of stories, 
but is that intentional? Are they doing that on purpose? And then finally, a soldier comes up to him with like a grievance, and it's like, I don't like this, blah, blah, blah. And he starts talking, and the soldier goes, oh, no, 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 you're going to launch in one of those stories again, right? And it infuriates him, and he has to walk away. But what Lincoln understands, and what Jesus understood, is that stories paint a better picture than facts, truth, stats, all of that stuff. There's something you can get at in a story that you just can't get at when you're spewing off statistics. A story has a way of reaching its arms around it and showing us its shape. Forget what theologian said this, but he says that a story is like throwing a blanket over the divine so that we see its shape, right? It's that idea that there was nothing there and then suddenly a story throws it over and you can see its shape. You can see what's going on in a totally different way. If I described to you uh, the love I have for Chelsea, my wife, my hope, if I gave you, statistically speaking, these neurons are firing in my brain, uh, and when I look at her, this happens, and my heart flutters, and all that's good stuff, right? And one, like, if I gave you that information, I would not want you to then fall in love with Chelsea, right? I would hope <laughs> that my love for Chelsea would show you a deeper truth, that there is a love, and that this love thing exists, right? It's throwing a blanket over the divine. It's painting a picture, and that's what stories, Haggadah, are perfectly capable of doing. Jesus would take the regular sort of standard thing of legal debate. This was a normal dinner practice, right? And he would turn it on its head. He would break the expectations. Because the best way we learn is when our expectations, the things we thought we knew, are affirmed, and then just a little bit of randomness is thrown in. And it breaks our expectation. The greatest way to take us from point A to point B to change our minds is to break the expectations that we have. And Jesus was a master at that. A master at saying, here's this way, now it's this way. Or the way that he would say it is, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. He's reshaping expectations. And the thing is, when he's across from these Pharisee guys, we always view them as like the bad guys and the enemies, right? They're the ones who put Jesus to death and they're awful and blah, 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 and they're so legalistic. But the thing is, he was sitting with them out of care for them. He genuinely wanted them to understand that now that I'm here at this table, it works differently. This religion thing that you've studied, this religion thing that you've spent your life devoted to, because I'm here, we have to learn to view it in a different way. And catch that. They're sitting across from Jesus. They're sitting across from the divine, talking about the divine, and completely missing the divine all at once. And what Jesus is trying to do is pull them back and say, no, 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 you thought it was this way, but now that I'm here, it's this way. When I was in uh, middle school, uh, I moved from Amsterdam to New Jersey, which is the worst culture shock you will ever experience in your entire life. Um, I went from being able to like, be outside until like 10 at night, and I rode a train to school, and I had a cell phone. It was like the, the coolest thing ever. It was a big flip phone. I could play Snake on it. It was just an awesome time, and I was doing that from like fifth grade to seventh grade, and then in seventh grade, my parents said, guess what? We're moving to a suburb of New Jersey, and I was like, what? <laughs> and we get there, and we arrive, uh, and life is totally different. I can no longer go to a train station. I can no longer just hang out with my friends until 10 at night. The neighborhood isn't as safe as uh, it was in Amsterdam, which you wouldn't think Amsterdam is that safe of a place, but it's like radically safe. It's really weird. Uh, in New Jersey, that all shifted for me. All of a sudden, I, needed, I relied on my parents for rides. I had to literally hop in a car to go places. Uh, but the one thing I did have and that I could hold on to is a skateboard. And that skateboard became my main mode of transportation. And here's the thing. I wanted so badly 
to be like a skater, right? Like I dressed like one, I would, I would read up on stuff, I would watch the skate videos, I would hang out with the skaters. But most often, and I figured this out, if I, brought, I bought a video camera, which I saved for like months to afford this video camera, and I would bring the video camera because when you brought the video camera, all of a sudden you were the camera guy and they would still wanna hang out with you because I was so bad at skateboarding. Like honestly, so, so bad. I could do no tricks, but I wanted to be in that culture so badly that I bought a video camera and I would just hang out. Um, so I couldn't do that. I couldn't really skate that well, but what I could do is I could hold a camera and, and it really served me later in life, I could research the heck out of skateboarding. So if you wanted to pull off after you've you know, done a couple tricks and stuff and you're hanging in the skate park, you could come with me, the guy with the camera, and I could tell you a history on Tony Alva and ball bearings and plywoods. It, like, I knew everything there was to know about skateboarding because I was a huge nerd. One of the coolest things, though, about skateboarding is that initially, uh, when the skateboard was created, it was created as sort of like a pastime or a secondary thing for surfers. So surfers would go out and they would surf all morning, but then when the waves weren't there or when they couldn't make it out to the ocean, they would ride these skateboards down hills, these boards that were made to look like surfboards, and they would bomb hills with them, and they would act like they were riding waves with their skateboard. But then a new group came along and they saw this skateboard and they saw it as something more than just a pastime. Something more than what it was originally created to be. When they looked at it, they said, wait, no, this could be its own thing. And instead of being surfers, I would like to be a skater, and I would like to make this a new art form, a new thing. I think it's not just to mimic how you surf. Maybe you can use this thing in a totally new way to create new ways of movement, new ways of expression, to create an entire new culture. All of a sudden, this thing that was built for one thing becomes built for an entirely new thing and it changes the game. I think that is what Jesus is trying to do at the table with these Pharisees every single time. It's to say, hey, I know you think it was built for this. I know you know the rules and I know you know the laws and I know what it was originally intended for, but hey, now that I'm on the scene, everything is gonna change. There are gonna be new ways of approaching this, new worlds of doing it. What's your expectation? I would like to show you a new expectation. And this is nothing new, because the very, very first book we have in the Bible breaks every expectation right out of the gate. So if you were a poet in ancient Hebrew society, which, you know, guys, this is real practical stuff for everyday life. If you were a poet in ancient uh, Hebrew society, you had one rule that you had to follow. Poetry was fluid, you could do whatever you'd like. And, and when we read Genesis, we have to understand that the author of Genesis was writing in grand poetic form. Like we have this beautiful, gorgeous poem. So that's not just an author, but it is a poet. It's divinely inspired, it's gorgeous language. But they would have known, educated enough to write this out in so eloquently and so detailed that we're still reading it thousands of years later. That's insanity. They would have known this one rule. It would have been like the same thing as when you start a letter, you say, dear so-and-so, and at the end you could write love or sincerely. The structure was there. This was built into every structure. This is the kind of thing that if you submitted a poem and you were in school, you would be graded down if you did not do. This was the structure you followed, and the structure was that every single poem would begin with the same letter. The same letter. And it's the first letter in the alphabet. It was A, or in Hebrew it was Aleph. Every single poem would start with the left. It was a way of saying to the reader, you're reading a poem now, right? It was the way that you would, it was the marker, it was the quantifier, it was the thing. When you looked at that letter, you went, oh, I'm about to read a poem. I'm about to read a work of art. 
That's what every good poet worth his salt would have known. But in Genesis, Genesis does not begin with A, with a left. And in fact, to make it even more tongue-in-cheek and even more like, eh, it begins with B. B, or in Hebrew, Bay, because of course it's called Bay, right? And here's what Bay looks like. I don't know if you guys can see it all the way, um, but Bay basically has this big structure on the bottom, and then it's got this little swoop here, and then on the top, uh, it's got like a roof, and then up there, if you look, that little like hook and that hook are designed to be like a little chimney. This whole letter was designed to look like a word. When we look at the Hebrew alphabet, it's like, it's like looking at the Chinese alphabet. All of that stuff it was supposed to model and resemble something practical, right? And each one of these letters was designed to model and look at something practical. There are entire books written on just the Hebrew alphabet and its meaning and its depth and its breadth and all of this stuff. So our entire scripture opens up with a B and not an A. It breaks the rules completely, structurally and everything, so that right from the beginning, it breaks our expectation of what this religious text is supposed to be. By the way, quick rant, uh, in seminary, I learned this, and I was always really bad at that like APA, ALA like formatting thing, uh, and then I would ask my professors how much I would get graded off if I didn't format my papers in that way, and they were like, probably about 10% off, and I was like, I'll take that, and I would never really do the formatting, and then I would submit uh, the Bible begins with B, and only the Hebrew <laughs> teacher thought that was funny. So anyway, um, the Bible begins with a totally different way of looking at the world, and for the, when the people would read this for the first time, they would go, why are you breaking the rules in the very first letter of the text. Not just in the first line, and there's wonderful stuff just in that first line. Go from the first letter to the first word. It begins with a B, and to really turn the knife even further, the author, the first line says, in the beginning, right? In the beginning, where there's supposed to be an A, now there's a B, in the beginning. Even more fascinated, in that very first line, there are seven Hebrew words. And then it goes on to tell the story of creation, which is seven days. There's all of this hidden meaning and expectations are being broken all over the place. But the most important thing we can look at is our religious texts, the way that it begins, the way that everything is outlined, is that it starts differently than anything that had ever come before, and it starts breaking rules right away. Because this God is different. You cannot put him in a box. You cannot have expectations about this God, about this character, because he's going to constantly break out of them. When we place expectations on God, and this is important, we actually, it, what the result is, is that we put regulations on God. When we have expectations of this is what God does and this is what God doesn't, then we're putting regulations on this is what God does and this is what God does. And that can be immensely painful when stuff like hurt and pain comes into our lives. Because all of a sudden that expectation of, oh wait, no, God is supposed to be this way. Where is God now? That's not in my expectation of God. I think a remarkably different way to look at God and what the first letter of the very first line of our entire scripture is screaming at us is don't have expectations when it comes to something as big and as beautiful and as mysterious and as strange as God. Don't carry expectations into this. They're always going to get broken, reshaped, and moved. 
when I asked you guys to write the questions, it was very apparent uh, that there's just a lot of hurt going on in our community. Just in the past week, uh, I've met with people who have experienced crazy loss just from this little crew. And so I was reading it, the, the biggest question that came up, and the one that we're going to do this morning, um, is this idea of how would a loving God possibly allow such terrible things to happen to good people? This is the perfect question to start this series off because this is the only question we can actually ask. Whenever we're talking theology, whenever we're talking halakha, use that word again, this is really the question that everything comes back to. How does a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? And I cannot answer that question. And in fact, God never really answers that question. There is no instance of anyone in scripture tackling this question and getting it right. Even the smartest minds. Trust me, and I tried to read everything up on this. No one really can get at the cause and the root of this question and answer it correctly because it's too big. But here's something immensely comforting. God may not answer that question for us, but God asks that question himself. We go to the end of the Gospels and Jesus is on the cross. Some of his last words were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God seems very, very, very deliberate and okay with us asking that question of him. And in fact, for Jesus to be fully human and fully divine all at the same time, he has to ask that question because to be human is to ask that question. God leaves room for it all over the scriptures. The Psalms, if you read the Psalms from front to back, you're going to read what reads like a teenage boy's diary after being broken up with and getting back together with it. Just all of that, right? There's all of this lament. There's all of this, God, where are you? What's going on? And I think the reason that that stuff is in there is because, one, it's okay for us to cry out. It's okay for us to lament. Even more than that, it's our expectation of what God is that really drives that question, right? It's the image of God that we have that really drives that question. There are three things in that question that we have to change our expectations on if we're ever even going to get close to understanding why bad things happen to good people. And that is we need to check our expectations on God. We need to check our expectations on love. Why would a loving God, right? And we need to check our expectations on people. Those three things actually need to shift for us to get a better, a better mindful on what, what's going on here. First of all, I think the number one problem with that question, which is a great question, but the number one problem with that question is that we believe all of those things are separate. Loving, God, people. But that's the wrong way to look at it. You're coming in with the wrong expectation. The right way to look at that question is that love and God are actually the same thing. We've that scripture, uh, Stephen. This is out of 1 John 7 through 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another because love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Could it be more clear in that verse that God is love? This is important. Love is not an attribute of God. Love is not something God does. Love is something God is. When we love, we experience God. God is in that. So that love and that God thing are just absolutely connected. 
We don't even have to put in the word love. We could just put white as God. And the expectation that that should carry with it is love. Why would love let something bad happen to a good person, to good people? Why would love let that happen? And here's what I'm going to tell you guys this morning. I don't think love lets that happen. I don't think love is responsible for that. I don't think God is responsible for that. I don't think God causes those things. And the number one reason I know that is because of a story in the scriptures, and this comes out of the gospel, uh, where Jesus is walking along and someone comes to him and he says, hey, your friend, the one you love, is sick. And for some reason, Jesus doesn't answer that call right away. He just kind of puts that to the side and just says, okay, well, we're going to carry on. And then a couple days later, they come to him and he says, your friend, your friend has died. He just goes, oh my gosh. And they walk back and they go to the family. It's his friend, Lazarus. And we don't know much about Lazarus. All we know is that this was the friend who he loved. And theologians and scholars have plucked that apart like a zillion times over. But the best thing we can actually look at is this was likely like the best friend of Jesus. His best friend has just passed away. And when he arrives, he arrives to a relative of his who is just sobbing and who says, why weren't you here? If you were here, you could have saved him. That's the posture we're constantly in. We look at God like God was somewhere else. Why did you turn your face? Why weren't you here? Where'd you go? If you were here, this wouldn't have happened to me. And here's what Jesus does. He does not respond with a halakha, with a legal debate, and says, that's not how it works. This is how it works. And theologically, let me give you the rundown. He does not respond with saying, you're wrong. He does not respond with saying, you're right. I should have been here. All he does for this woman is to just sit in the very same space, in the very same pain, in the very same hurt that she is in, and experiences that with her. And it's the shortest verse in all of Scripture. It just says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. And that word wept is not kind of like a single Hollywood tear coming down the cheek. That kind of weeping is the gnashing of teeth, tearing of clothes, on your knees, sobbing uncontrollably. I don't know about you, but I would rather follow a God who's willing to sit and cry with me and follow a God who's willing to prevent something bad from happening to me. Because if he can prevent something bad from happening to me, he can cause something bad to happen to me. I would rather follow a God who is willing to sob, to be vulnerable, to be with me in my hurt, in my weakness, and to help me. The psalmist declares, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Not my prevention, not my, my divine intervention, my help. My help. That's the beauty of God, and that's the beauty of following God. And if we're going to follow God, here's the thing. If love and God are the same thing in that question, we've got to look at people. Love is the same as God, and we are made in God's image. We are made in God's image. And here's the insane thing about that. That really comes down to what we believe God looks like, right? 
If we're made in God's image and we have a vision of God like Zeus and he's got a lightning bolt and he's ready to hurl it at you at any point, then we are going to become that image, right? Revengeful, spiteful, smoteful. <laughs> Smote, the only word you can use that exclusive to God, smote. Uh, we become that. But the image of God is much, much grander and crazier. And if we're made in his image, that changes everything. In Christianity, there's this little bit of theology, and it goes like this. We, we believe God uh, has three personalities, or three parts, right? It's called the Trinity. It's a really complex, crazy thing to get your head around, because it's one God, three parts. How does that work? Light it out. We're not going to focus on it this morning. But basically, you have the Father, and you have the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the way that that works, kind of like your classic like, theologian sort of thing, they'll, they'll put quantifiers next to that, and they'll say, well, God, he's the creator, right? Father, we've got the creator. And then we've got the Son, who's the redeemer. And then we've got the Spirit, who's the inspirer. I don't know if that's the word. Probably not the theological term, but the one who inspires. Those are the roles. Those are the personalities. And if we're made in that image, we have all three of those. We've got the creativity, we've got the redemption, and we've got the inspiration. But you can also look at that, you can turn and look at it just in a little way and change the expectation because if we look at it in the view of the cross, we're looking at God in three parts. Suddenly we have the Father, the griever. We have the Son, the sufferer. And then we have the Spirit, who's the comforter. And all of that exists within us. All of that. I think all too often when it comes to this question, we get turned around with trying to how to prove this theologically or with big fancy God words rather than actually taking the time for, to care for that good person, quote unquote. Why do bad things happen? The answer is they're gonna happen. What about the person? And what is it about the person being made in God's image and you and I being made in God's image that causes us to come together to help each other? In 1912, this really fascinating study came out. It was called Elementary Forms of Religion. Uh, and the author was the son of an Orthodox rabbi who kind of got burnt by his tradition. Sound familiar? This guy went through life, uh, an Orthodox Jewish man, and just felt burnt out by the entire process. And so he, he went into school, he, became, he got a lot of PhDs, he became very smart, and he decided that he was going to research what it is about humans in specific. No other species has religion, right? No other species has anything like that. And so he wanted to figure out how, how these religions get formed. How did Judaism get formed? How did Christianity get formed? How did Hinduism get formed? He wanted to figure out what it was that made these things tick and what it was that made these things spark. And so what he did is he went to rural communities, mostly in Africa, just burgeoning, just starting out tribal communities. And he would see these burgeoning religions get started. And here's the thing that he noted that is so important for us right now. Religion is at its best and when religion is in its original state, when it's just starting out, religion does not exist to draw people to God, but religion exists for God to draw people to each other. In the original forms of all of these religions, what this author was able to write down and experience is that when these things got started, when these movements first start happening, what happens is that everyone feels a collective call from God, and that brings them to each other. And that is a totally different view 
of religion and church that we have today. For us, for most of us, walking into spaces like this, it's supposed to be that we're supposed to come in here and this is supposed to connect us to God. But the original intent for spaces like this and for this community is actually to walk in and have God connect us to each other. Because within us all, there is the creative, there is the redeemer, there is the inspirer, there is the griever, there is the sufferer, and there is the comforter. And when we can link into that and understand that it's sometimes we're this and sometimes we're that, and we need each other to comfort, to grieve, to do all of these things, that's what's truly going to change our hearts. One of the most, one of the, the only other question I got asked more than this question in the questions thing is, why is it, if this stuff is real, doesn't it actually transform us? Why do our lives look a lot like the people who aren't following Jesus. And I found that question remarkably sad. Because the truth is, if we're really following this stuff and we're really taking this stuff seriously, it's going to grow us to each other. It's not just this personal gain, personal benefit stuff. It's actually going to be practical stuff of like, I have a community. I have people that love me. I have people that will help. And I am one of those people. If you want to look at actual transformation and how this stuff really works, we have to look around at each other. That's the barometer for real, true grace, redemption, and transformation. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Uh, for this morning, for this space, for this new series, for the ability to uh, ask the questions and, and to understand that nothing is off the table. That we are in a tradition that actively seeks these questions, that, that hopes to talk about them, wrestle with them, with each other, and not just answer them, but be able to tell stories about them, about real people, about what's really going on in our lives. So again, I just thank you for this space, for these people, and for the ability for us to come and talk about what matters the most. Amen.